a very good morning a good evening or uh, a very pleasant day to wherever you are on behalf of isacos and the knee sports and preservation committee and my co-chairs dr seth sherman from the united states and dr brett fresh from australia i welcome you to the first webinar from isacos for the year 2022 meniscus repair is a very important topic that has gained a lot of traction in the past decade or so and as we improve our expertise to repair more and more complex meniscus tears it was but fitting to provide you the world's best faculty for discussing the current problems of meniscus tears and how do we repair them today we have a fantastic faculty that represents all the different continents across the whole world and for this we have Dr Thomas Di Berardino from the United States we have Dr Marco Di Mangie from Brazil Dr Roisuke Kuroda from Japan Dr James Robinson from the United Kingdom Dr Brian Devitt from Australia Dr Alan Getgood from Canada and Dr Maria Tuka from Chile they will be discussing the important topics which are which we will be now highlighting in the next slide which looks at today's agenda so let's have the next slide please which shows the agenda for today and with this with this we will now move on to today's live webinar we will start first by looking at relevant anatomy and biomechanics followed by the current indications of when to repair and when not to repair a meniscus horizontal cleavage tears ramp lesions radial tears root tears and when anything everything fails what do we what how do we do a meniscus allograft transplant so over to the first speaker please enjoy this webinar an important announcement to type in your questions in the q and a box we will have a very interesting discussion at the end of today's webinar and we would like to answer all questions uh, in which you have today for the benefit of all the listeners so over to the first presentation with dr tuka discussing about biomechanics and anatomy of the meniscus hello everyone thanks for the invitation to join this webinar We will start with a brief reminder of what we already know about anatomy and biomechanics. To jump right into the latest publications about meniscal irrigation, neurovascular hazards, attachments, and meniscal degeneration. Some of the anatomic differences between both meniscus are that the medial is more C-shaped, whereas the lateral is more circular, with a more uniform width. Lateral meniscus covers a higher percentage of the tibial plateau compared to the medial meniscus. And medial tears are more common but tend to be degenerative, whereas lateral tears are more frequently associated with ACL tears. Medial meniscus has some more rigid attachments and is con consequently less mobile, versus lateral meniscus that is twice more mobile during knee flexion. The four basic biomechanic functions of the meniscus are load transmission by increasing congruency, contact area, and decreasing point loading. shock absorption since the meniscus is more elastic than cartilage absorbing 20% of shock forces in normal conditions acts as a secondary stabilizer through the posterior horn of the middle meniscus that turns into the primary static stabilizer in ACL deficient knees 
And finally, lubrication, since it compresses and helps circulate synovial fluid. And thanks to lubricin located in the surface of the meniscus, reduces the friction coefficient to one even lower than ice. So now we will focus on what's new about meniscal anatomy and biomechanics published during the last years. Starting with the vascularity of the meniscus. Classical study of middle-aged specimens by Dr. Warren and Arnowski showed vascular depth range from 10 to 25%, defining the classic three zones of the meniscus. More recent studies using younger specimens have agreed with these findings, highlighting that in spite of the maximal depths, as you can see in the graphs, were around 40%, the average vascular penetration remains under 20% in all areas, with the posterior horn of the middle meniscus having a significantly smaller irrigation depth. Vascular density has a linear decrease with age and absent in the red-white zone in patients above 20 years old. The capsule is by far the most vascularized structure with the highest contribution. Moving to neurovascular hazards, this classic MRI study confirms that the artery is almost always lateral to the central axis, rarely in the center and never medial. Interestingly, anatomic variants such as the Baker cyst can push the artery far lateral. The highest risk for neurovascular injury is when aiming the posterior horn from the anterolateral portal, as you can see in these drawings. Reaching a proximity of four to six millimeters between the device and the popliteal artery and vein. This distance increases significantly if we aim it from the medial portal. Pediatric patients' safe zone is even smaller, increasing with age, but with an average distance from the free edge of the meniscus to the artery wall that ranges from 10 to 14 millimeters in female periodic specimens. Of course, these studies are performed with an in extension, so we must consider that knee flexion increases the distance protecting the neurovascular structures. And now, regarding the attachments of the lateral meniscus, they have been extensively studied. The Stedman Research Group describes from the back to the front, first, the anterior and posterior meniscoformal ligaments, known as Humphrey and Risberg, followed by the lateral capsule in blue that merged to the superior margin of the lateral meniscus from the posterior horn to the junction of the anterior horn, except for the 12 millimeter hiatus of the proboscis tendon. In orange, the meniscal tibial ligament that covers 13 millimeters of the posterior horn. In green, the popliteal meniscal fascicles, anterior and posterior superior and inferior bundles. And finally, and anterior to the popliteus tendon, is the meniscofibular ligament in purple. Nevertheless, nomenclature for this area varies significantly and still raises some confusion. Dr. Monjau's team have reported a thorough study of this area, with consecutive cadaveric histological MRI studies describing three main structures that could be involved in preventing meniscal extrusion. The lateral meniscotibial ligament, located anterior to the popliteus tendon, followed by two popliteal meniscal ligaments surrounding the tendon, and in the posterior lateral corner, the popliteal fibular ligament. They named this intricate combination of ligaments the meniscotibial popliteus fibular complex. 
their histological studies also recognize these three distinct entities. And MRI analysis of 105 knees showed a constant morphological pattern with a very high prevalence for the three structures of this complex versus a lesser presence of the meniscofebral ligament. And finally, what is the role of the risk ligament? The systematic review and meta-analysis show that it's a prevalent structure, suggesting a relevant biomechanical role. That is not totally clear, but proposed as providing tension to the posterior horn, stability to the posterior horn in the presence of a root tear, may have a supporting role in PCL healing, and act as a secondary restraint to posterior forces, mainly through neurosensitive feedback. Of note is the aspiration test, validated tool published last year as an easy and available strategy to diagnose posterior horn instabilities. And now let's move to the medial meniscus attachments that reach a greater consensus. Starting in the front with the anteromedial capsule merging to the superior margin of the meniscus, followed by the deep portion of the MCL and pole attaching to the body. In purple, the semimembranosus fascial expansion to the posterior horn, right beneath the posterior capsule in white that expands through the posterior horn and merge with the meniscotibial ligament in orange. If we look in more detail the anatomy of this area where rump injuries occur, the sagittal view highlights that the meniscocapsular ligament and the meniscotibial ligament merge together in a common attachment that is located one third below the total height of the posterior horn, explaining the hidden rump injuries. Also questioning the ability of horizontal trajectory techniques, such as all inside devices, to repair rump injuries, since they may not be able to capture the tibial stump that attaches six millimeters below in the tibial plateau. This gross and macroscopic analysis from the Santi group confirms the same findings and adds the role of the semimembranosus that has a central bundle that inserts directly in the meniscocapsular and meniscotibial ligament, suggesting contraction of the semimembranosus could also be involved in the pathogenesis of rump injuries. And finally, two slides about meniscal degeneration. This study showed traumatic tears had significantly altered histological scores versus intact meniscus, whereas no significant difference were seen with osteotritic ones. In agreement with these findings, this molecular and histological analysis found progressive yellow degeneration, collagen disorganization, upregulation of osteotritis biomarkers, and downregulation of healing mediators as part of a catabolic process triggered by the meniscal tears that was more significant if associated with acute ACL tears, challenging the theory that concomitant ACL injury would enhance meniscal repair. So we can conclude from this talk that meniscus have less than 20% vascular depth, that surgeons should recognize neurovascular safe zones and consider the safety recommendations for all inside repairs, as well as recognizing the normal attachments of the medial and lateral meniscus in order to diagnose pathologic conditions or injuries, and that meniscal tears seem to trigger a catabolic process that may threaten the outcomes of our preservation strategies. Thank you very much. Well, very many thanks to Issa Koss, and particularly to Sachin and Seth for asking me to give this talk. 
And it's been a challenge not to just show the champagne repairs, but rather to go through where we perhaps shouldn't operate. Here are my disclosures. Now, back in 2015-16, as a result of a number of high-profile papers, which essentially looked at meniscectomy in the degenerative knee, they developed a backlash against knee arthroscopy with some really sensationalist articles appearing in the press. And even the normally well-respected British medical journals, this was the 2016 editorial in the BMJ, what, no more arthroscopic trims to extract gold from knees? How else will these poor folks support their families? And this then led to the publication of Clinic, which came out in 2017. Now, this landed on the doorstep of every family doctor in the UK. The conclusion of this was that this panel concludes that arthroscopy is not cost-effective from a societal point of view and believes that almost everyone would prefer to avoid the pain and inconvenience and the recovery period after arthroscopy since it only offers a small chance of a small benefit. Wow, pretty bruising stuff. Now, whilst this did have some benefit in discouraging unnecessary arthroscopies, particularly meniscectomies, it did force us as knee surgeons to try and justify which meniscal surgeries were necessary and which were not. So this was the resultant British Association guidelines that appeared in 2018-2019, and it stratifies patients into groups on where surgery or conservative management may be appropriate. The first group is that of the lot knee, where I think there'd be little argument. For example, where you see a displaced bucket handle tear like this, locked in the intercondylar notch, we're going to reduce it and then go on to repair, in this case, with an inside out repair. The second group is the acute meniscal tears that warrant repair, and that will be the focus of much of this webinar. And these are lesions such as this acute, full thickness lateral radial tear, you see me repairing with a hashtag technique, and also this uh, complete medial meniscal root avulsion. And these are the acute injuries that defunction the meniscus and require repair. And then in groups three and four of patients where the MRI demonstrates a meniscal target or possible meniscus target, and where surgery uh, depends very much on the duration and severity of symptoms, with conservative treatment being very much an option, particularly for three to six months, uh, to allow symptoms to settle. And this would be, for example, with the undisplaced meniscus tear, such as uh, this 45-year-old. You can see an undisplaced posterior medial meniscus tear with surrounding parameniscal edema. And this patient did very well from having an ultrasound-guided aspiration of this and injection of corticosteroids. Now, I checked with him yesterday, and six years down the line, he's back to cycling and swimming without the need for any further surgery. And we must remember that it's perfectly possible to have a meniscal tear with very minimal symptoms. And indeed, meniscal tears can be incidental. So we have to make sure that it's the meniscus tear that we're seeing on the MRI that's responsible for symptoms. And then finally, there are the tears on the background of significant degenerative change. In these cases, particularly if there's significant malalignment or joint space narrowing, then a meniscal repair is simply not going to work a meniscectomy may well make the patient worse. And as a, as a well-known Australian surgeon said, 20% get worse and 80% may not get any better. And we have to think carefully because the patient often comes to us with a preconceived idea. They have the MRI report that tells them they've got a meniscal tear. But of course, what they haven't done is read further down at the report, whereas, yes, there's a complex tear of the medial meniscus, but this is on a background of uh, established degenerative change. And that, of course, it's meniscal disease, 
rather than acute meniscal injury. So I'd like to cover some specific tear types that I don't repair. Now, I was intrigued that my national ligament registry data suggests that I repair more medial menisci than of average, me in blue and natural average in red, but less numbers of lateral menisci. And that puzzled me. But I do wonder that a number of these type of tears get repaired when they don't need to be. This is a partial thickness, small lateral uh, peripheral longitudinal tear. And there's good evidence from the Moon group that in fact, this type of tear when left alone is a positive prognostic indicator for ACL reconstruction and they don't need to be addressed and there's a very low reoperation rate. There are other tears which in my hands a repair is not uh, something that would work. These kind of displaced rounded off flap tears respond well to being resected, uh, leaving a good volume of meniscal tissue. And similarly, these degenerative avascular zone radial tears, again, I, I think these respond very well to a, a meniscectomy, leaving a good volume of meniscus uh, uh, remaining. And the patient then recovers to their activities, very minimal downtime. I think we also have to be very careful about operating in, on root tears when patients present delayed, uh, particularly if they're obese, varus, and there's significant degenerative change. So for example, in this case, you can see the varus alignment and joint space narrowing. And although there is a, a root tear adjacent to the posterior horn that's full thickness, when we pan up onto the uh, medial femoral condyle, you can see that we've missed the boat and there's already a uh, down to bare bone lesion of the medial femoral condyle. Uh, and in my view, then I think this is better managed with conservative treatment. And then when required, a definitive unicompartmental knee replacement affords good results. So there are also patient factors where we have to be careful about repair. Andy Williams has shown us that in professional footballers, they can get back to sport quickly with medial meniscectomy with very few issues versus meniscal repair, where he reckons there may be only a 50-50 success rate. This is very different, of course, the lateral side, where we should really be trying to repair due to the issues seen with lateral men meniscectomy. There are also patients such as self-employed builders and personal trainers who simply can't take the time off for the rehab, and they won't want to take the 20% risk of a meniscal repair failure. And so we have to have a nuanced discussion with these patients about whether meniscectomy is a better option. People often worry about age and whether that is a, a contraindication to repair. But actually, this study is going back to the beginning of meniscal repair. This was Chuck Henning's work. Uh, as Charlie Brown says, the godfather of meniscal repair, showing very little correlation between the uh, repair healing success and age. And Robert Parr's more recent paper showing no difference in uh, those patients under 50 and those over 50 in their problem scores after medial meniscal root repair. And in this case, this was a 65-year-old whose meniscus I elected to repair, very much judging this on the quality of the tissue rather than the age of the patient. And taking this meniscus out would have been a subtotal meniscal loss. The patient's done well following a repair. So some surgeons also worry about tear chronicity and its and the ability to repair. Well, there's actually very little evidence to show that the time interval between meniscal trauma and surgery influences healing rates. And we indeed ourselves have looked at uh, bucket handle tears repaired with ACLs and shown that there was very little difference in healing rates uh, between those repaired acutely and even those where the tear had remained displaced for up to a year. And so my final points will be that, that not all meniscal tears require surgery. Look at the tissue quality. Is this meniscal injury or is this meniscal disease? And let that guide your treatment. And then age and chronicity 
should not necessarily deter you from repairing. Many thanks. Hello, my name is Brian Devis. I'm talking to you from Melbourne, Australia. I'm going to speak on horizontal cleavage tears. Why, when, and how should we repair them? I have no disclosures that are relevant to this talk. So first of all, I want to start with another question. What are horizontal cleavage tears? Well, essentially they're tears that occur parallel to the tibial plateau, and they may occur in either the medial or lateral meniscus. These tears result from increased shear forces that occur in the meniscus, and they're typical of sporting injuries or acute trauma, but they occur very frequently in the setting of degeneration, where you get myxoid change within the body of the meniscus, and ultimately this extends to the vascular and avascular zone and can give rise to a breach in the wall, which causes a horizontal cleavage tear and a cyst. So how common are these tears? Well, if we look at the historical literature, we find that in the setting of arthroscopy, that they're present from between 23 to 42%. It's likely that they're more common in nowadays within the setting of MRI scans. This is a fantastic study which was carried out in 2016, where they looked at the prevalence of degenerative tears as people aged. And they see that when you go from the sixth decade, there is a prevalence of 25%, which increases to 45% by the eighth decade. And this is very highly associated with arthritis, where there's rates of between 75 to 95%. And we know that a lot of degenerative tears are indeed horizontal cleavage tears. The study also contained this excellent MRI series, which looked at the change in the MRI pattern from baseline to four years. And you see initially there's a little bit of a signal in the posterior horn of the medial meniscus. This increases to a linear signal, and then a, uh, which extends to the articular surface. And following this, you get more complex tears, which occur with a radial component or a vertical component, and often a free flap. We also see horizontal cleavage tears in the setting of discoid menisci of both the lateral and medial meniscus. So it's important to look out for them. So how are they traditionally treated? Well, in the past, they were treated either non-operatively with physiotherapy or with partial or total resection. In partial resection, you can remove the unstable leaf, either the superior or inferior leaf. There was somewhat a reluctance for repair initially because perhaps it was technically difficult and the instruments weren't as good as we have today, but also because there was a thought that there was limiting, limited healing capacity, which probably relates to the degenerative nature of many of these tears. But there have been some interesting systematic reviews that have looked at a large number of patients. And this one in particular has looked at 702 patients. 59% were treated with partial meniscectomy as opposed to 33% with repair. They found that both of these groups did very well and uh, had surpassed the minimally clinical, clinical difference in terms of outcomes with clinical and radiological outcomes included. But they did note a high complication rate, particularly with repair. So their conclusion that Although meniscal repair gives rise to improved biomechanical loading, there is a high rate of complications, so they should be cautious. So how do patients fare when you compare partial meniscectomy to do nothing, or more appropriately, to non-operative management? In this systematic review of 102 patients, there was a mean age of 53 years with 81 female. They looked at the difference between arthroscopic meniscectomy and non-operative management with supervised rehabilitation. And once again, they found no significant difference between operative and non-operative treatment. So then why should we repair the, these horizontal cleavage tears? 
Is it because the implant companies tell us so? Some things are best left intact, as they say. Well, there's more compelling reasons than that. The biomechanical reasons are shown in this study by Beamer et al, in which they look at a model of horizontal cleavage tears and they, give, they repair them. They also um, perform partial resection and then also full resection. And they look at the load of the lateral compartment. And they found that if you compare the intact state to the repair state, they're very much the same in terms of load. So it restores the, the purpose or the function of meniscus. Whereas if you compare the tear to torn state, it's equivalent to the partial resection state and full resection obviously increases the, the loads through that compartment. There's also good compelling clinical reasons. And this systematic review looks at nine studies in 98 patients and found that most of these patients do well and the criterion for failure, which is reoperation, is 77.8%. So this is not all that bad in terms of repair and somewhat equivalent to other uh, repair um, percentages of success. This further study looked at a multi-center trial using a different suture technique. And they had, although they had relatively low numbers of patients, they found a no reoperation rate of 82.6%, which is quite similar to the previous systematic review. And once again, improvement over baseline levels with low rates of complications. So then we ask ourselves a question. We know why we should repair them, but when should we repair them? This is a very nice uh, study from a group uh, in France where they looked at the clinical outcome with open repair of horizontal meniscal tears in young patients. And they looked at 28 patients with horizontal tears with a mean age of 25 years, and they had a preservation rate of 80% for the meniscus. They did caution that function results decrease in greater than 80, 30 years of age, for the patient that is, not the surgeon. And there is a, they differentiated between degenerative tears, which tend to do less well. So in terms of the indications for tears, we look at the indications as being young adults, a stable knee with intact ligaments, no arthritis, and those who have failed non-operative management. The contraindications are essentially the opposite, advanced age, knee instability, osteoarthritis, and, air, and meniscal tears that have avascular flaps. So how then should we repair horizontal cleavage tears? Well, this is a very nice study, once again, from the Mayo Group with Aaron Critch being the lead author. And they looked at a technique using the knee scorpion to create circumferential compression sutures. And this very nice diagram illustrates quite nicely as you get the two layers of superior and inferior leaf and you cinch them together with this stitch. There have also been studies looking at the addition of um, PRP or platelet-rich fibrin clot. And this is a nice study which shows the addition of this fibrin clot, which is introduced through a suture mechanism to enhance healing. But it wouldn't be a talk on meniscal tears without, from Australia without mentioning the great Pete Myers from Queensland. And he really is the authority on meniscal tears in this part of the world and probably the world in general. So how does Pete Myers repair horizontal cleavage tears? Well, I spoke to him about this recently and he says he uses a blood clot he has to allow the blood to coagulate and he uses a glass for this, which is not as readily available as you think in normal theatres, but he waits until the clot is nice and firm so it can take a suture. And he introduces a suture between the two layers of the horizontal tear once he's removed any little fragments and trephinated or caused some bleeding at the level of the capsule. And then you have this nice result with inside out sutures in a very similar pattern to that of Critch, but he doesn't use the knee scorpion because he said it squeezes the, the blood clot out or like jam in a sandwich, it exudes from the sides if you squeeze it too tightly. 
So I then looked at this platelet-rich plasma. Was it considered effective? And really, the jury is out on whether it is effective or not at this point in time. But we really need more studies about its use utility. So finally, my final question, horizontal cleavage tears, so what? What do you need to take from this talk? Well, I would urge you to give youth a chance. Certainly try repairing these tears in young patients. Be careful what lurks underneath. It's especially with the tears from discoid menisci, you have to expect that you're going to have a horizontal cleavage tears and be ready to repair them. Don't be a one-trick pony. You need to utilize all of your meniscal repair skills in this setting because oftentimes it requires inside-out sutures, all inside sutures, and some other suture um, devices. Beware, beware the degenerative tear, and sometimes it's best left alone. Sometimes you're better off in the degenerative setting not removing part of the meniscus. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairman. My name is Ryosuke Kuroda from Kobe, Japan. It's a great honor for me to be here today. I'm gonna to talk about ramp lesions, when, how, and why should you repair them? As you know, ACL injury is not only ACL injury. Meniscus injury is 50 to 70%. Articular cartilage injury is 8 to 20%. Medial collateral ligament injury, posterolateral structure injury, and anterolateral complex injury are popular associated injury. Incidence of rump lesion found in ACL injured patients according to recent studies, is 15 to 30%. Rump lesions are defined as vertical longitudinal tear of posterior horn of the medial meniscus. Rump lesion diagnosis is difficult by preoperative MRI. Rump lesion are often missed hidden lesion due to the fact that they cannot be seen by standard anterolateral and anteromedial arthroscopic inspection. Rump regions are excellent indications for repair. In 2016, classification of rump lesion was reported. Type three, partial inferior or hidden lesion the lesions are not visible with transnotch approach, but may be strongly suspected when there is significant mobility by probing. Type 4, complete tear in red-red zone. Mobility at probing is very high. I will share the cases. Case 1, 18-year-old female, acute ACL injury. You can see the mobility at probing is very high. Transnotch view, there is no tear in the posterior side. So this is type three lesion, hidden lesion. Case two, 54 year old female, chronic ACL injury. You can see a degenerative change in medial meniscus, mobility at probing, is high. Transnotch view, 
you can see a complete tear in red, red zone. So this is type four lesion. So do all rump lesion need to be repaired? There's still controversy on this topic. Biomechanical study using cadavers comparing ACL intact knees with 25 millimeter rump lesion to ACL intact knees showed no significant difference in knee kinematics. Clinical studies have shown that no treatment for stable rump lesion or trephination and rasping alone for stable rump region smaller than 1.5 centimeter. Clinical outcomes equivalent to repair with ACL reconstruction. Therefore, possibility of no repair for small stable rump region with combined ACL reconstruction. Why do we need to repair? Biomechanical studies have shown increase in rotatory and anterior laxity. ACL tear with rump lesion caused increased in anterior tibial translation, tibial rotation, and pivot shift test. ACL reconstruction did not restore these, but ACL reconstruction with rump lesion repair did. Also, clinical studies have shown high-grade pivot shift test and increased anterior translation with rump lesion. So when should we repair rump lesion? Unstable large lesion are recommended to be repaired. However, there is no consensus on. The definition of large lesions, Soneri Koten et al. has proposed repair of all rump lesions to decrease risk of pain and further meniscectomy. There is a trend towards identification and repair of rump lesion. The most common technique is the all inside technique following by inside out technique. For the all inside technique, meniscal suture devices or suture hook devices are used. Satisfactory clinical results have been reported for rump lesion repairs. Study comparing ACL reconstruction with rump lesion using the inside out technique compared with isolated ACL reconstruction shown similar clinical outcome between the groups and 88% return to preoperative level of sports or activity was seen in rump lesion repair group. Also had good clinical outcome and the reoperation rate of 6.8%. Therefore, large unstable lesion should be repaired. Rump lesion repair may achieve satisfactory clinical outcome in combination with ACL reconstruction. Take home message, diagnosis of rump lesion is difficult by preoperative MRI. Rump lesion cannot be seen by standard anterolateral and anteromedial arthroscopic inspection. 
transnode view is needed to find rump lesion. Incidence of rump lesion found in SL injured patients, according to recent study, is 15 to 30%. SL tear with rump lesion increased until tibial translation, tibial rotation, and pivot shift test. Rump lesion repair achieved satisfactory clinical outcome in combination with ACL reconstruction. I propose repair all rump lesions because rump lesion is hidden lesion. Probing is not always accurate, right? So uh, I suggest repair all rump lesions. Thank you very much. Everyone stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. Hello. So we're gonna talk now about radio tears. And the whole idea here is to, to talk when, why, and how do we repair them. Um, the, the first thing we, we need to discuss is why to repair them. So as you just see, Dr. Tuka has shown biomechanics on meniscus. And one of the most important things to understand whenever we look to a radio tear is to understand that the circulate, circular uh, fibers are going to be ruptured in, the, in this direction, what's going to change a lot the biomechanics of the knee regarding the load uh, absorption. So this is a very interesting paper from Dr. Betty uh, and Susan Meyer. Uh, performed at the HSS, looking to the contact pressure and the overload whenever you do have a radio tear in medial and lateral meniscus. So they use this kind of devices to simulate the load and the walking using uh, a system that could uh, look to how much increase in the load would happen with 30% radio tears, 60%, 90%, whenever sutured and how it's going to end up. So it's very interesting regarding the results that if you have just a little radio tear in the free area, that is the non-vascular area, the increased peak pressure is very mild and not that significant. The problem happens whenever it progresses and you do have a radio tear that gets to the peripheral area or the vascularity area of the meniscus. So the peak load will be very increased, especially whenever you look to 90% on the medial meniscus or above 60 to 90% of the lateral meniscus. So the lateral menisci has a, a more load increase whenever you do have a radio tear. Also, the problem regarding this abrupt uh, load uh, over the, the condyle and the plateau is cartilage disease, or also you can end up with a subchondral fracture. So the overload in subchondral bone can end up in a spunk lesion that would be uh, due to the overload. We do have those tears combined to ACL tears also, which is very common. Uh, whenever we do have this kind of, of problem, uh, with the ACL, it's usually in the lateral meniscus. And there are so, some very nice papers showing that whenever we do have lateral tears combined to uh, ACL tears and we do repair them, 
we do have less chance of having cartilage problems. So if you look here, uh, it's a uh, very significant difference regarding repairing and not repairing uh, radial tear combined to ACL tear due to the cartilage disease. This is another nice paper showing that whenever we compare medial meniscus, bucket hand repair, and radial tear repair, we do have kind of similar results, which shows that repairing complete radial meniscus tear may be positive considering to leave that tear without doing anything. So full thickness medial meniscus tear should be considered to be repaired. Uh, there are very few systematic results. We see this one from Dr. Laprade's group, uh, which was performed in 2016. And even though whenever they start the search, they end up with 6,000 uh, uh, records, they end up only with six articles of radio meniscal tear. So these are the articles. Most of them are after 2005, whenever the device has have become better to do in repair. And most of them are combined with uh, ACL tears and they are lateral meniscal tears. So we have very few data on medial meniscus, but a little bit more data on lateral meniscus. And the reason uh, that we do have data more in lateral meniscus that usually patients that have lateral meniscus radial tear are younger than patients who have uh, isolated radial tear in the medial meniscus. So with this, uh, we know that the, the evidence is poor. Well, there's a new systematic review performed very recently, last year published in Arthroscopy, who, which has uh, also added some few studies that were performed after 2018, even though it ended up with very few studies, and most of them are retrospective studies, and most of them are still regarding repair of the lateral meniscus radial tear combined with ACL. So we do understand that whenever we do have combined with ACL, there is a, a better healing uh, result and it should be uh, repaired. And there's very strong uh, data towards uh, a repair because the failure rate is better. The problem is whenever we do have uh, isolated meniscal tear that there's very few data available. Anyway, we understand there's at least partial healing in more than 90% of the cases of repair when they go to a second look arthroscopy. So when should we, we repair those? We should repair those in young patients, especially whenever it gets nearby the vascularity area, and especially when it's in the medial meniscus. We do understand that, as Dr. Tuka showed us, in the posterior horn of the medial meniscus, the vascularity is worse than in the middle of the meniscus or in the lateral menisci. So are those lesions that happens in the in elder patient, which are spontaneous lesions, they're radial tears, and usually they're not traumatic tears. They're very uh, spontaneous tears. Even though they're radial, we call them fatigue meniscus tears. This is one of our publications in their, uh, um, explaining this kind of tears, and usually it's in the posterior horn of the medial meniscus, and it's a partial isolated meniscus tear. When it goes uh, this way, and it, whenever it's small, we do not advise repairing them. 
we do advise doing a partial meniscectomy because doing a partial meniscectomy, you prevent them to go to the end of the meniscus and end up with meniscus extrusion. And we do have data that clinical results are good. And those, uh, the Betty studies, Dr. Betty and Susan Hamaya, her studies shows that 30% of meniscal, medial meniscal uh, partial meniscectomy will not overload uh, the cartilage that much. Probably, part, this is uh, uh, that nice study from the New England Journal of Medicine that shows that 40% uh, or 50% of the patients who have uh, those called degenerative meniscal tear, they're in fact sudden and abrupt. Probably part of those patients, they have radial meniscal tear. So we do understand that there's the problem regarding having a meniscal tear that is not treated and end up with complete meniscal tear is that they can end up with meniscal extrusion and usually they are better benefit with kind of some treatment to avoid this problem by the end. Whenever we do have a complete meniscal tear, even in the medial side, although we do not have large data regarding that, and whenever the cartilage is okay, we do advise trying to put meniscus back and trying to suture that. So how do we suture that? And how should you proceed technically? I rec really recommend this article for Dr. Aaron Princh from Mayo Clinic. Uh, you can access the whole video of the technique in arthroscopytechnique.org, and it shows a way you can do this kind of repair horizontally with multiple stitches. It's an inside-out repair that should be performed in patients with good cartilage, and sometimes something that you need to do to access that area a little bit is it sometimes you do need to pie crust a little bit the MCL. And it's okay to do that because it's better to keep cartilage okay instead of trying to do a repair and do a cartilage lesion hydrogenically. But this is another technique that it's doable. Uh, uh, Dr. Laprade and his group has shown this technique and it's nice also to, to take a look of that because you can have also a vertical mattress to protect your meniscal repair a little bit more. So one thing that you can do is do initially vertical mattress here and also doing the horizontal ones. So with this performed, there's less, uh, less chance that the meniscus is gonna rupture during the suture. Another thing that you should consider, especially whenever you have isolated meniscal tear, is considered to do orthobiological augmentation. Dr. Delwich has shown uh, blood fibrin uh, clot or PRP, and, and there's also interesting to do some increase of healing of, of the chance of the healing process. Avoid repairing partial meniscal tear in the middle, uh, in the posterior corner of the medial meniscus, which we consider there's a fatigue tear. So go for partial meniscectomy. And also do not procrastinate a partial meniscectomy because you can end up with a complete radial tear. So improve healing techniques, try to, to put it back, treat lateral meniscus as a bigger problem than the medial menisci and we're still waiting for long-term studies. I leave here my, my data and my contact information. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thanks very much for the invitation to be involved in this uh, great uh, webinar. So I'm gonna be giving an overview of root tears uh, when we should repair them, and none of my disclosures are relevant for this talk. Um, we know from a lot of the work that Dr. Laprade has been working on, you know, talking about the silent epidemic of this degenerative change following a medial meniscus root tear, 
progressing on to end-stage degenerative change and needing for arthroplasty. This is actually a patient of mine that I saw with really end-stage uh, spontaneous osteonecrosis. If you see this MRI that she had meant about a few years prior to being referred, you can see she's got medial meniscus extrusion and also a medial meniscus root tear. So this is a significant problem. Why are medial meniscus root tears important? Well, they, they defunction the meniscus. We end up with increased contact stress. We've already heard from Maria the importance of the meniscus in terms of load sharing and shock absorption, how we get increased articular cartilage wear, and then that spontaneous osteonecrosis and early osteoarthritis. They are quite common, uh, about 10 to 20% uh, prevalence, depending on which study that you read. And these have been classified uh, depending on the tear type, but generally they're accepted as a tear within nine millimeters of the root insertion. How do we go about making the diagnosis? We've got to think about risk factors, think about alignment, particularly in, in varus, increased BMI, they're very common in middle-aged, overweight people uh, in varus. Uh, the patients will often complain of a sudden onset of posterior knee pain, stepping off a sidewalk, uh, stepping off a step, get a sudden uh, feeling of a popping sensation and pain. If you hear that, then one has to think about the possibility of a root tear and investigate accordingly. Uh, physical examination, you can look at this extrusion test, essentially placing the knee into varus. You may feel the meniscus extruding out of the joint line when your fingers are sitting on the joint line, as well as, of course, joint line tenderness. Uh, radiographs will obviously form the, 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 the first step of our imaging, but the MRI is diagnostic. We'll see that basically on the coronal section with the extrusion and then the so-called ghost sign when going through the sagittal slices. You'll see from medial through to the notch, the medial meniscus will be present and then suddenly it will disappear. And that's the ghost sign when the root is, uh, is gone. How should we think about treating them? Well, we've got to think about whether patients are surgical candidates or not. And often we've got to think about the chronicity and whether or not there's coexisting uh, degenerative change, osteoarthritis, but really got to think about the symptom profile. And really for me, it's alignment is a big part of this. As I said, the risk factors, one of the major risk factors is varus. So we'll often think about doing a, uh, a, a, a associated uh, high tibial osteotomy. And in terms of the treatment and the results, well, we know for sure that non-operative treatment doesn't do, uh, doesn't do as well. Um, and even worse than that would be operative meniscectomy. So we know we shouldn't be doing arthroscopic meniscectomy. Non-operative treatment doesn't necessarily mean not doing anything. We can be doing a neuromuscular rehab program, and I'm sure there are many patients that will do well with that. Uh, partial meniscectomy, no benefit. The question is really, does root repair alter the natural history? And what we see from this study, um, uh, which is basically a systematic review meta-analysis, what we see is that uh, non-operative treatment uh, tends to do slightly uh, better than um, meniscectomy. Meniscectomy does very poorly when we look at the survivorship analysis of time to OA on the left-hand side and freedom from uh, total knee arthroplasty on the right-hand side, whereas repair seems to be somewhat protective. But really there are no great comparative randomized studies to confirm this as yet. There is some, uh, Jorge Chala is leading the charge in this uh, respect out of rush. So time will tell hopefully in the future. In terms of lateral roots, well, why are they important? Well, we do also see altered tibial femoral contact mechanics associated with a lateral root tear, but probably slightly more importantly is this issue of kinematics and uh, the fact that the lateral root 
and the posterior root insertion aids in the control of anterolateral rotatory laxity when associated with an ACL tear. There's some studies, one of which coming from my own lab, pretty showing that the lateral root has an important role to play. We're going to see about an 8% prevalence. So around about one in 10 patients that you're doing an ACL reconstruction on will have a lateral root tear. So if you don't look for them, you will miss them. Uh, we looked at some of the results of our root tears in the stability study. This was a randomized clinical trial in young patients undergoing ACL reconstruction with or without lateral tenodesis. Uh, in our own center, we had 22 patients that had a lateral root repair. And we did quantitative MRI scanning out to two years to assess repairs. In terms of patient reported outcomes, we had no difference in patients who had had a root uh, repair versus those that had no root lesion at all. Um, but also we looked at meniscus healing on the MRI and we found that only one patient was classified as having a root uh, repair failure. Um, we also looked at the, the quantitative MR to determine whether or not that root those root repairs were having an effect on, on being protective to the art, particular cartilage. And there were no differences between the quantitative MRI of T1 row or T2 relaxation times compared to the contralateral knee. So that maybe suggests that this root repair is providing a chondroprotective effect. Now, there is some latest research, which we were remiss of me not to talk about. Uh, this is a study from Leo Pajewski in Sydney, uh, where uh, his group looked at uh, the treatment of stable lateral meniscus posterior root tear. So essentially doing non-operative treatment for these lesions compared to a group of patients who are having ACL reconstruction with a normal meniscus. So essentially non-operative treatment of the, of the lateral root tears. They had um, 52 patients in what they described as a with stable repair or with stable tear group. 28 of those were root avulsions. 24 were these sort of part beak type tears compared to a group of no tears of 440 isolated ACL reconstructions. And not really that surprisingly, there was no difference in patient reported outcomes uh, judged on an IKDC between the groups. Uh, but that's not really that surprising in view of the fact that we don't often see big differences in, or uh, significant differences between treatment groups with ACL reconstruction um, uh, with patient-reported outcomes. ACL graft rupture, which is probably a more important uh, measure to look at, again, there were no differences, but of course, this is underpowered for this particular outcome. So we really need larger studies to really determine the impact of lateral roots on our outcomes. How should we perform a root tear? Well, there's been many biomechanical studies looking at the suture configuration and the type of sutures. Uh, so these, this study look, think, uh, suggested uh, that this locking uh, loop suture um, was superior. A uh, double tunnel technique showing a bit, uh, better uh, load to failure and pull-out strength than a single tunnel. But the question would be whether or not this really uh, transpires to a clinically significant difference. It's a nice study from James Robinson looking at the insertion of sutures and where you should put them, as well as the type of uh, suture, whether it was suture versus tape, showing that tape seems to have a, a, a stronger uh, maximum uh, load, load to failure. Uh, in terms of also putting the suture into the body also has uh, an improved failure load. So this is an example of a case. It's a 26-year-old undergoing a revision ACL reconstruction. You can see significant anterior laxity on Lockman with a high-grade pivot shift. Um, we can see here on the arthroscopy uh, that a significant lateral root lesion. And so this would be my sort of typical uh, root repair uh, where I'm going to debride the um, insertion using a curette and shaver. And we're going to get down to, uh, down to bleeding bone 
And so just clearing up some of the articular cartilage. I'm then going to pass a guide pin using a root guide. So there are proprietary devices that can pass a root guide, uh, a pin. And I'm going to use a single tunnel. I'm going to drill a 4.5 millimeter drill over this pin, leave that in situ. And then we'll pass this, the sutures into the root insertion. I'm going to do the same for the medial meniscus as I would do for the lateral. So I've transitioned to using tapes. And this is essentially like a horizontal mattress suture using, again, using a proprietary device to pass the suture, uh, first going from inferior to superior, then the second pass going from superior to inferior. And I pass two tapes in this fashion, uh, locking them over uh, one another. And then once the sutures are passed, we're then going to shuttle these sutures into the tunnel, utilizing, uh, actually just use a simple uh, in, inside out meniscus suture uh, to uh, pass up the tunnel, grab the loop, and then shuttle the, the tails of the uh, sutures down into the tunnel and tie these over a button. So this example is just a very nice example of, a, uh, of an examination under anesthetic by uh, Charlie Brown, showing this high grade uh, pivot shift uh, preoperatively, and then following a lateral root repair before the ACL reconstruction is performed, the, the reduction in the pivot. So there's clearly an impact on that lateral root repair. In terms of rehabilitation, do the same for medial and lateral roots. So it's basically zero to six weeks, touch weight bearing, 90 degrees range of motion in a tracker brace, and then progress the range of motion and weight bearing from six weeks onwards, but just avoid uh, squatting uh, past 90 degrees until three months. And the medial side will often use an unloader brace just to really try and prevent the issue of uh, loosening of our fixation. So in summary, root, medial root tears defunction the meniscus, non-operative management generally associated with less favorable outcomes. And certainly we don't want to be doing partial medial meniscectomy. We know that doesn't work. Lateral root tears compromise rotatory stability and they're commonly found with ACL tears. And then posterior root repairs, the optimized meniscal function, improve knee kinematics and potentially improve patient outcomes. Thank you very much for your attention. Hello, I'm Tom DeBerardino coming to you from around the world, located here in San Antonio, Texas as a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Today we'll discuss meniscal allograft transplantation, when, how, and why you should do it. As a disclaimer, I have the following uh, disclosures to make. I get research support and I'm a consultant and I'm on a data safety management board with ASCOLIP. There's a growing body of literature supporting meniscal transplantation with 58 articles published just last year. In the latest article out of Germany, the German knee group members indicated that in 90% of their members thought meniscal transplant was a clinically important and valuable procedure in Germany for their patients and needed to work out reimbursement jurisdiction over donor grafts and the availability to make it more available. In another recent article, Dr. Musal and his group confirmed once again that osteoarthritis was a predictor of meniscal allograft failure do not do transplantation of the meniscus in an osteoarthritic compartment. Finally, on a brighter note, in this study, Dr. Stefano Zafagnini and Dr. Marillo Maracci and their group confirmed that 70% of cases returned to their pre-injury level in their pre-injury sport 
with 85% still being active after five years, giving meniscal transplantation that longevity and bridge building effect that we are looking for. Transplantation is still indicated for compartment pain in the involved compartment after a subtotal or medial meniscectomy with age less than 55 with a normally aligned knee that's stable or stabilizable with cartilage changes grade two or less. It is contraindicated with chronic diffuse pain, age over 55 with severe cartilage damage with residual malalignment and certainly contraindicated if no pain exists. Transplantations can be with bone plugs or a dovetail technique. I've done over 2,500 with bone plugs for both medial and lateral meniscal transplantation. And here's a picture of a typical graft used by me back in 1997. Double bone plug technique uh, diagrammatically looks as such with bone plugs anatomically located, recapitulating the hoop stresses, followed by inside out sutures, securing the capsule to the meniscus, not the meniscus to the capsule. This avoids iatrogenic extrusion at time zero. Graft table preparation again is unchanged for over two and a half decades using two fiber wires currently and two tiger wires for color differentiation. I use a rangeur to create cylinders out of the square bone plugs obtained with a one centimeter wide microsagittal saw and central drill hole for suture passage. You can use a coring reamer of our guide pin uh, to obtain cylinder plugs. I prefer box cuts to anatomically and more carefully recapitulate the anatomic uh, withdrawal of the bone plugs from the donor plateau, followed by a rondure to create cylinders with a central drill hole, as I mentioned. Box cuts are made. In this case, we have a whole plateau with a medial meniscus with four box cuts and a horizontal cut giving us a seven millimeter deep plug and a square bone plug initially that's rongeured to a cylinder shape. Final graft appears as such with nine to eight millimeter plugs in diameter that are seven millimeters deep with the permanent sutures ready for graft passage. Graft preparation is done with a central drill hole Permanent sutures passed up through the bone plug across the robust meniscal root tissue and then back down through the plug, giving us a secure permanent suture fixation of bone plug to recipient socket. We also place two vertical sutures in the posterior third of the meniscus. Here we are passing our prepared graft. We have the passing sutures placed, which we'll go over later. We're guiding the plug into the enlarged medial portal in this case of a left knee medial meniscus transplantation. The plug is carefully uh, coaxed through the prepared socket and seated and secured with a button or screw fixation akin to a swivel lock. Bone plug technique has four key steps for graft passage and secure fixation. The posterior horn is passed and secured followed by passage of the two vertical sutures and tying them together, bringing the capsule to the meniscus. We recapitulate the hoop stresses finally by uh, obtaining our anterior horn anatomic socket for anterior horn placement with a swivel lock interference screw fixation device. In the dovetail technique, we're making a dovetail plug that will be press fit into a dovetail semi-trapezoidal shaped recipient slot 
With the dovetail technique, we can use an osteotome guide or drill guide system. This allows us to use a dilating rasp and dilator to allow for press fit fixation and inside out sutures. In a recent case, we have a 28 year old female prior meniscectomy medially on her knee with an ACL graft deficiency and normal alignment with a patellar osteochondral defect that will require meniscal transplantation, a revision ACL with lateral lengthening and an open megapatella osteochondral allograft plug placement. Here we see her meniscus. The meniscus is securely uh, placed without harm to the cartilage with a revision ACL graft. as well as your patella osteochondral allograft plug. Finally, we have our most recent case of the right knee medial meniscus here in acorn reamers, confirming an adequate wall and eminence plasty for passage of graft. Drill our retro socket, prepare it for uh, suture passage, for passing suture for posterior horn placement. A lasso, 90 degree in nature, giving us two more capsular passing sutures the two vertical sutures permanent in nature prepared on the back table on the meniscal graft. Pass our graft after we finally prepare the meniscus back to a bleeding capsule annotating the anterior horn insertion site. We secure the posterior horn bone plug and then the anterior horn bone plug is passed and secured with a swivel lock in this case. We now have our meniscus with inside out sutures again with no damage to the cartilage iatrogenically. Meniscal transplant is an excellent bridge building joint restoring operation. Thank you so much. So I think uh, we've had a lot of questions and very interesting uh, discussions, uh, very fantastic presentations from all the faculty. May I please invite all the faculty to come on live now. We have some time for some great questions. And I'm going to start, um, I'm going to ask Brett to kick off the Q&A. So if uh, all the faculty could have their camera on and their microphone on, please. Brett, over to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Sachin. And thanks to the entire faculty for a great uh, webinar thus far. I know I've learned a lot watching it. Um, my question, I'll start with James. Um, when we do decide to repair, we've talked about when we should and when we shouldn't and how we repair. My question is what we do afterwards, and we could talk about the rehab probably for a while, but the one question I want to know is when can we let them go back to running? When do you let your repairs run? And I guess there's two types there. One is if the, the longitudinal tears and one is the radial tears. When do you let them run again? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think you're right to differentiate between the two types of tears. So as you've suggested, your, your circumferential tear um, joint loading would act to compress that tear. Um, so for me, I'm, I, I'm much, much earlier allowing them getting back to running sports. For the radial type tears, um, you know, any loading is going to act to try and split that tear apart. So I'm really slow about, you know, reintroduction of those, uh, those activities. So for me, the radial tears get a period of six weeks of non-weight bearing. Uh, then we uh, progressively add in weight. Uh, and so we're expecting a sort of, if you like, normal gait path, normal activity, a bit of biking by uh, the, the sort of three month stage. But really running and more dynamic things for that, I'm adding in at about four and a half to six months for those radial tears. 
Whereas, you know, for the, the, the circumferential tears, I think we can go much earlier than that. So, you know, by the time we've got that early healing, you know, we're, we're protecting them partial weight bearing for about six weeks and then increasing activity. So I'd expect to bring in jogging around about the sort of 10, 12 weeks. So much earlier. A longitudinal tear run at three months, radial tear run at six months, James. I, I, I think that would be where I'd stand, yeah. Thanks. So just, just to add to this, it's very interesting that uh, the, the tear pattern should uh, also uh, change the, the timing of running. Uh, so whenever I have a vertical tear, the weight bearing all the way, just after suture. When it's horizontal, I, should, I usually keep walking uh, non-weight bearing or partial weight bearing within like three to four weeks, and then I do full weight bearing. But with radio tear, I do just the same. At, at, at everybody just just uh, answered right now. The only thing that I changed to me, if it's um, lateral meniscal tear uh, in more kind of the posterior zone, then I'm more afraid of twisting over them. So whenever people start running, I go just treadmills, but not running outside. And the other thing is. I also change regarding the age of the patients uh, because whenever we do have like a medial tear and it's a complete tear in someone that is a little above uh, 55 or after uh, this kind of age, I usually try to uh, underload them with an unloader brace in the initial run. Incredible talks, everyone. It's uh, never too early in the morning to uh, consider saving the meniscus. So I've learned uh, so much here. Um, and for me, uh, that question, it's about minimum time for biology and protection. And then it's about functional progression. So I think you need to incorporate both, just like we've learned in the ACL world. Um, so my question is to uh, Ryasuke's incredible talk. Um, you know, ramps have come uh, into all of our thoughts and minds, particularly with explosive pivot shifts. Uh, really in your busy ACL practice, how often are you seeing and doing ramps? Give the audience from around the world uh, amount for how we should be doing this. And then just reiterate, there was a question in the chat about your specific technique briefly. Hi, Seth. Uh, what is the question? Uh, ACL injury? My first question was, uh, give everybody a sense of how often you actually are repairing ramps in the setting of ACL, like in your busy practice, so that we know, are we doing too many, too little, or, or none at all, uh, your threshold, um, and then uh, your specific technique briefly. A technique of uh, meniscal repair? Ramp, ramp repair. Ramp, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the basically, I do uh, inside-out technique, uh, ramp lesion. I, uh, in ACL tear, we at least need to do a, a trans-notch view. We, we should see the trans-notch view to check uh, ramp lesion. But uh, uh, acute uh, young patient, many are hidden lesion, only the partial tear of the TBL side. So that's uh, the probing is very important. So the probing, and uh, you can check the instability of the medial meniscus, TBL side. Once you can check and uh, there's a instability, very probing is the uh, mobility is very high. I always suture by inside out technique. But very, very posterior side, I do all, all inside technique, like a fast fix or some uh, scorpion or something. 
Thank you. Would you say you're doing one per week, one per month, many more, or many less? Oh, the ramp region, uh, every month I, I, I see the ramp region. Every month, okay. Yeah, in, in my talk, I said 30% uh, of ACL tears. So, uh, wow. Thank you. So question to Brian now, an excellent presentation on how to do a horizontal cleavage test. I think one question that has come up on the Q&A box and uh, you know, which comes to us every now and then is that does the presence of a paramenisical cyst indicate that you have to repair that horizontal cleavage or in these particular scenarios, would a resection of one of the leaflets also be fine? That's a very good question. Um, I think it depends in many cases what the chondral surface is like and how many how much the patient has symptoms from the cyst itself and not just from the tear. Um, I think with a lot of these cysts that are chronic, it's quite hard to address or decompress the cyst interarticularly. Uh, inter so oftentimes I will do an extra articular or just an outside um, decompression of the cyst. And when I'm there, I try to suture it over with some vicol or absorbable suture to, to close it down. Um, whether I would repair it or not, uh, interarticularly with, based on the patient's age and the, the status of the, the cartilage surface. If it is, if there are some flaps um, which are unstable, I tend to remove them uh, and assess the tissue quality. I'm not going to repair them unless I can assure that I'm going to get a good repair. If the tissue quality is poor, I tend to leave it alone and just address the cyst, which is typically the symptomatic part of it. Sure. I've got a question for you, Al. Um, I, I seem to be seeing the meniscal root tear more often than 10% in my ACL patients, I think. I'm not sure why. I uh, might be uh, overfinding them. But the one I see often is a meniscotibial disruption with a very solid meniscofemoral component still intact, no extrusion. I kind of look at it, it's stable, but it's definitely almost like the one you showed in your picture there. Do, uh, is that, do we need to repair those? Like if, if that's the, the one I'm always confused about, do I attach the tibia when it's stable, but clearly damaged? Uh, Cause it changes the rehab a lot, taking an ACL patient from fully weight bearing, easy closed chain to touch weight bearing, more difficult rehab. Yeah, it's a great question, Brett. And um... You know, if you look at Leo's paper, you would say, no, leave him alone, right? Um, if you look at the biomechanical studies, and if you look at the study, you know, our study, we left the meniscofemoral ligaments intact and cut the root underneath the meniscofemoral portion, and we still saw some increased anterolateral rotatory laxity. So I think, you know, we're, I think we get into different discussion about meniscofemoral ligaments. They, they stop the extrusion, so maybe you don't have the same issues with potential chondrosis an issue of degeneration, but are they going to control anterolateral rotatory laxity? Biomechanics study would suggest no. Um, outcome studies, if you look at patient reported outcomes, would suggest no, you don't need to repair them. Um, but if they increase high-grade laxity, does that have an impact on failure? So, you know, what do I do? I, I fix them um, because I want to try and have an impact on, on graft failures, particularly in young patients going back to pivoting sports because we know those patients have got the highest risk of re-injury um are we over treating some probably i tend to take the same approach 
Excellent. I have a uh, question for uh, Marco Demange. Um, there was a question from the chat about um, just safety of uh, meniscus repair, medial and lateral. Can you touch on that? Uh, when do you really get concerned about the popliteal artery and in what trajectories and directions? And then give us again your tips and tricks for access uh, for tight compartments on both sides, please. So usually whenever uh, I do have a radio tear that's nearby the proclitus tendon, I go over the, the tendon. I suture the radio tear in the tendon and, I, and there's some data showing that that's not a big issue. And usually the patient has like some discomfort for, a, for, for some months and then it's okay afterwards. Uh, whenever you get nearby like the end of the mystic goes more like a root tear instead of being a radio tear. So, what I would go and try to do that with kind of, um, I don't know, the cur curved shoulder uh, lasso. devices, uh, like lasso. a lasso on that area. But usually we do see radio tears more in the transition in between the medial horn and the posterior horn more than very in the back. Because whenever they are very in the back, usually we do have like ramp lesions or uh, root tears. In the medial side, what I usually do is I do a little bit of pie crust on the MCL more nearby the, towards the femoral side. So nearby the femoral insertion, I do a little bit of pie crust and it opens a little bit more because then whenever it's isolated and it's without the ACL tear combined, it's easier to access without tearing the cartilage because you don't want to do hyatrogenic uh, uh, tearing the cartilage also. I sometimes also will do a um, reverse notch plasty using a rasp on the medial side and with transplants uh, as well. Uh, and just to reiterate, the most dangerous is an all inside trajectory from the same sided lateral portal from front to back. So just mm -hmm. keep in mind that one's very dangerous. Go ahead, Sacha. Yeah, a question to uh, Thomas now. I think um, a great talk, though we could not hear the last bit of it. <laughs> so, you know, the most important question that keeps getting asked over and over again regarding meniscus transplants is bone plugs, yes and no, and how do we reduce extrusion on the medial right. and the lateral side? So let's uh, get a precise answer from you, please. Yeah, so um, there's three big techniques. I didn't get to talk about the all suture soft tissue technique, and, and that's viable and been done a lot in Europe, obviously, by a lot of big proponents that have done thousands and thousands. But I love bone plugs because I get to put that horn exactly where your meniscus root tear or root absence was. So I put it back. You know, we do an imperfect operation in a perfect environment is what we like to tell our fellows. So, you know, to avoid iatrogenic extrusion, getting good recapitulation of the hoop stresses is essential. So if we're off a little bit in a lateral meniscus, when we do a slot technique, we're off a lot kinematically. But with bone plugs, I can dial in my uh, retro socket for my bone plug placement exactly every time. And it's the first most important part of the operation. Um, and so we have to nail that 100%, otherwise it's not worth doing it. And then bringing the capsule to the meniscus is key. You first put the horns in, and then the meniscus really can't iatrogenically get extruded. You push your knots toward the meniscus and don't pull the meniscus out of the compartment to a patchless capsule in a chronic case. You have to reestablish the, the hoop stresses so you don't short sheet your meniscus and end up with too short a meniscus as you drape the meniscus to a patchless capsule. That's a risk that we need to definitely avoid. And that's how we've done it for three decades now. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. So I think, uh, you know, it's been a fantastic webinar. And now we're going to have uh, Seth come in with, with some cases. These are going to be rapid fire questions. So I request all the faculty to keep their answers very short and crisp because we want to try and involve most faculty. And we've actually already run out of time. But since it's so interesting, we'll keep going on. Over to you, Seth. Excellent. Can you see my screen? Absolutely. Good deal. So this will be very simple. It's going to be re repair versus resect. How are you going to do it? And are you going to use biologic augmentation? So we'll go to James Robinson. This is a 69-year-old. He's a fly fisherman. He has an acute locked knee. He had a lateral meniscus repair two years ago. Uh, and that's what you see. So you saw that video. So repair versus a resect. Uh, and what are you going to do, James? James, please unmute yourself. Thanks. Thanks very much. Sorry. James, um, yeah, James so is speechless that they let us operate on a 69-year-old in America. Yeah, very good. No, that was, that was excellent. And he's had a repair, and it's the lateral meniscus. I would be assessing the quality of his cartilage um, and that repair tissue. The lateral meniscus, you know, usually repairs pretty well. And if that reduces well, um, I, I'd re-repair that. I, I, you know, I'd give that another go. Uh, if it's an isolated bucket handle without an ACL, I tend to try and augment those with a bit of fibering clod as well. Um, but if the if the tissue's quality is good, the rest of his knee is good. I treat him based on the on the on the status of his knee rather than his age. Excellent. So uh, you're more adventurous than me. The tissue quality was terrible. It was immobile, chronic, and uh, revision. And so for me, this was a trimming, and he did quite well, and is still doing well. He has a lateral. Yep. He has arthritis. He's countably. Um, and so, you know, I think just the point that not everything has to be a heroic repair uh, in our in our lives and practices, but uh, lateral side, definitely lower threshold to, to consider. As, I agree. I agree. Um, and if you can't get it back, you, it won't reduce. Take it out. It, you know, he'll do all right. Yeah. Um, for a while. Um, so here's a four year old. Um, she has an ACL tear and a bucket handle medial meniscus tear. So uh, Tommy D, uh, resect versus repair. How are you going to repair it? And are you going to use biologic augmentation? Repair inside out sutures or devices, and usually a hybrid for the dangerous posterior third. Often we'll use implants, and then I like inside out sutures. And occasionally in a young little girl, we'll let them fully whip or lock an extension uh, to get those um, axial load forces to help actually reduce it if it's a good bucket handle tear in the red, red zone. You're going to use biologics on this one with an ACL reconstruction? Probably not. I think the biologics are there with a 10 millimeter socket. <laughs> Excellent. So this just shows a, a technique, you know, when you have a reasonable rim that you can actually do uh, an all inside and, and not just, um, you know, an inside out. So I think that the data uh, is there now to support this consideration. You can see getting good circumferential compression around the back. We can see a hybrid approach, uh, really just capsule there. So we're using all inside devices towards the mid portion. Um, but in general, I would do what Tom said, all inside in the back and inside out for the majority. Um, and then you can see here just the ACL after we exercise the meniscus with the ACL. You can see it finds its way nicely. Uh, I weight bears tolerated these as well uh, and um, treat them similar to Tom described. So here's a, a case. Let's go to Brian. So this is an athlete. Uh, he has a horizontal cleavage tear of the anterolateral meniscus with a large cyst. He's failed conservative treatment. So you're in the operating room. This is what you see. It goes to the periphery. Uh, are you going to repair? Are you going to resect? 
Uh, he's a football athlete. Uh, and are you going to augment with biologics? Uh, yes, uh, I'm going to repair. I'm not may resect if there's any loose flaps, but uh, just to get into the cleavage tear, get some trephination of the capsule. Uh, and I will do an inside out technique, which would allow me to decompress the cyst. I, in this situation, I would use uh, um, some biologics, uh, probably blood clot in my hands. Um, and um, yeah, that's it. Excellent. So um, yes, I did repair. Um, this is hard. It's all the way in the front. Uh, but you know, Rob LaPride yelled at me for doing too little sutures. I'd say this is too many sutures. So maybe Peter Myers would yell at me for that. Uh, and uh, I agree that it's challenging here trying to keep the biologic can squirt out. This is technically harder. I think we have room for improvement, but this was a PRP with clotted whole blood. And he went on to heal at MRIs at a year and back to sport um, in the time frame that you had all discussed previously. Nice job. All right. So 17 year old, this is a year of mechanical symptoms. This is lateral meniscus. This is essentially going almost all the way, uh, you know, to root, but not um, a root avulsion, obviously. Um, so let's go to Marco. So for this isolated lateral meniscus flap tear, uh, are you repairing? Are you resecting? Uh, and are you using uh, biologics? Uh, tell us what you do here. So if it's a male and he, if he's in Ferris and with isolated, I would just take it out. Uh, if okay. he's in a little bit of valgus and usually female athletes in a little bit of valgus, I would be more towards, it, it, it's lateral meniscus, you're saying, isn't it? Yep. So, so if it's female and vulgus, I would try to repair. Uh, if, if it's male and varus, I would take it out. Okay, and uh, I think that just speaks to knowing before you go. I routinely get mechanical access views on these patients because I want to have all the information in my armamentarium. So weight-bearing x-rays and mechanical alignment views so you can help tease out that decision-making if you were going to fix it, how would you fix this particular one, Marco? So, yeah, this is a, a, a hard one. Probably would do some stitches in the very back here. And if there's some uh, in the white area nearby the front that I'm not able to repair, I would take do also a combined partial minisectomy. So I would try to repair everything I can. But if not, I would go just to the white zone and, and do not fix it. I agree. This is a very hard one to repair. I use a combination of different all inside techniques, really apex reduced, and then uh, doing some underneath to bring the meniscus down, and then some circumferential compression, as you'll see finally. Uh, and it's a good repair, not a great repair. What biologic would you use? So, with this, as it's hard to, to keep the biologics in, what I would do, I would do a bone marrow aspirate from the tibia. And by the end of the, the, the repair, I would just inject inside. Or also combined, I would do a microfracture of the notch. So, I would do both. I would do microfracture of the notch. And also, I would go to the tibia and, and aspirate in the metastasis of the tibia inject by the end of the case. You uh, concentrate the tibial aspirate, or you're just getting. No, I do not. No, just bone marrow aspirate, plus the microfracture of the notch. So for me, I just trained the notch microfracture to go right to the repair side, as you saw here. And then briefly, uh, weight-bearing, uh, are you uh, toe-touch for this one? Yes, non-weight-bearing for this one. Yeah. yeah, this is a challenging one that you can't weight-bear on, unlike the, the bucket handle. Uh, Al Getgood, you have an ACL tear. You see this uh, uh, incident that didn't show up on the MRI. What are you doing with this? 
So that, I'm fixing that. So that's a single tunnel, two suture tapes, uh, pulled down a tunnel, fixed over a button. So uh, how often do you see in laterals that are missed on MRI, Al? I'd say the majority are probably missed on under missed on MRI. I think they're very difficult to uh, to diagnose on an MR. You don't get that same sort of ghost sign appearance because often the meniscus femorals are intact. So I do repair those, but you know, it goes back to that conversation that I had with uh, Brett as to whether or not you should. And we really need bigger data from you know registry data to be able to really determine whether these have an impact on our failure rates, not just our patient-reported outcome scores. And for this one, uh, what are you augmenting uh, biologically in the setting of an ACL reconstruction? There's a lovely big tunnel sitting right over the top of it. So there's no issue there with biology. I think the key here is that you just got to go a little bit slowly with, uh, with rehab, which could be, you know, could be at the detriment. Don Shelburne certainly is, is a proponent of, of aggressive uh, of rehabilitation and would argue that's why you shouldn't repair these lesions. So, you know, again, we need stronger data. Excellent. Thanks. And uh, I think this is the last one for uh, Ryosuke. So uh, ACL, uh, explosive grade three pivot shift, and we have uh, these MRI findings. So what are we looking at here? This is a medial side? Yes. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, uh, medial posterior uh, tear is a rump lesion. So uh, should repair it. And so here's what we see when we probe it from, uh, from in the joint. So we're pulling from the front and you can see that there's really, um, you know, uh, nothing uh, to see here. Um, and then when you go, excuse me, let me go back because that was important. Um, so uh, when we go, let's play that again, if we can, uh, not let me play. Yeah, there we go. We'll just let it run through. So from the front, uh, we can't, uh, you know, feel that there's any instability, uh, but having a high index of suspicion from the MRI, looking from a posterior medial portal, you can use the spinal needle. This is to the, the ramp is, is it's a complete different ramp. other factors uh, that um, don't need to be corrected. And so this is low hanging fruit uh, to help protect your ACL. And this was an all inside uh, repair strategy uh, that uh, was employed. Um, uh, is, is that, yeah, go ahead. Seth, Seth, is that acute case? That was an acute case, yes, uh, I think. Oh, really? But the rump lesions looks like a little uh, degenerated. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I, I don't remember uh, specifically uh, on, on that one, but uh, um, yeah, it looked uh, retracted and degenerated. So, you know, it could have been subacute or chronic. I really don't 100% uh, remember. But uh, in yeah, general, like that, you feel like they're, they're more chronic. not always uh, uh, good. So you have to do a transnotch view. Uh, if you have a little stable, unstable, you should do a posterior media approach. Yeah, I recommend. Thank you. I want to ask just one last thing. Uh, Al, is that one where you pick up the ramp and then do it all inside from the front? Yeah, I like to do all insides um, primarily because I, I feel I can get a much better bite of the meniscotibial ligament as opposed to the postromedial capsule. Um, and I find it a lot easier, but occasionally I will do a postromedial portal and do a repair from the back. Excellent. We'll turn it back to Sasha. 
Okay, thank you so much. I think we've come close to about 90 minutes. Um, a big thank you to ESACOS for organizing this fantastic uh, events uh, throughout the year. They keep us engaged, they help us learn. A big thank you to my co-chairs, Dr. Brett Frisch, as well as uh, Dr. Seth Sherman, some excellent cases at the end, a fantastic faculty. I mean, thank you to all of you because you've been here amidst everything and you've taken time off and prepared fantastic talks, giving us great learning points to take home. A big thank you to all of you. A big thank you to the ESOCOS audiovisual team to try and you know, host these webinars. And I really look forward to inviting all of you, almost about 400 of you still present on today's webinar to join ESOCOS if you are not a member. It's a fantastic place to be in for great academic education and for um, you know, fantastic networking and understanding a lot about the new research and new trends in current practice. Another quick reminder that you should join us in 2023 for the next Congress, which is happening in Boston. And uh, thank you also very much for making it for today's evening. And we'll be having this webinar coming on the ESOCOS global link very soon. So all of you who have been posting questions that can I see this, I need to revisit this particular talk. I think um, do check the ESOCOS website. You'll be able to see all of these very soon on the next presentation. And thank you all of you. Have a fantastic day or a very good evening to all of you and hope to see you soon. Thank you once again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.